Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Biblical theology, that is what we try and do here at Theology Matters with the Blues. Have a great show lined up for you guys today. We're going to be uh, looking over my talk that I did at the York Baptist Apologetics Conference so two weeks ago. And uh, looking at the overcoming 
of the hijacking of science. We'll look at how uh, belief in the existence of God and science are not in any way, shape, or form <clears throat> opposed to each other. I need to say right off the bat that I am not feeling at my strongest today. In fact, I just uh, uh, got a sore throat, and uh, so I may be coughing from from time to time, so please forgive me for that. Uh, but we will uh, carry on anyway, as they say. If you have not liked us on Facebook yet, you can go to Theology Matters with the Palouse. And if you're new to the show, what we try and do on this show is deal with a lot of different apologetic and um, theological topics and issues. Um, we think theology matters. Uh, we think apologetics is important. In fact, we think it's vital to the Christian. We think it's vital to the country. Uh, I think that in order to uh, stop the decline of Christianity in America especially, uh, the church really has to uh, do a better job, get back to its roots in giving a defense for the Christian faith. And we're going to talk about that today. But we have shows <clears throat> that we have done on Roman Catholicism, shows uh, with debates uh, with Protestants, Roman Catholics, um, debates with Mormons. Uh, we've done a, a few different debates now with atheists. And again, we do these primarily because we, you know, we think theology, again, matters. And it's a good way for people to hear uh, opposing views. And, um, you know, some of the best uh, of the other side. Uh, for instance, when we have brought on our, our Roman Catholic friends, uh, we had some really sharp guys, some, some very, very sharp, uh, good thinkers. And, um, you know, though, though we wouldn't agree with their conclusions, uh, we do appreciate uh, their thoughtfulness, uh, etc. So, anyway feel free to go to our Facebook page. You can sign up uh, on the on Android or iTunes at True Radio, and that's kind of our our station. So you can you can connect that there and, and listen to our past episodes. Well, today is actually uh, the National Day of Prayer, and I'm going to read a, a quick article kind of in preference to the uh, meat of my talk. This article was written by my friend Adam Tucker. He's been on the show before. He was a, a Ratio Christi uh, chapter, uh, chapter director at one time at uh, UNC Greensboro <clears throat> and uh, did a great job. He's on staff now at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and he's a, a good friend but also a very good thinker. So I wanted to go ahead and read this article. He says, Reason, according to the Merriam-Webster, uh, it is the power of the mind to think and understand in a logical way. This intellectual power is often championed by atheistic thinkers and spurned by many who consider themselves to be religious or spiritual. And this, he says, includes many Christians, unfortunately, and Brother, I feel your pain. I see this <laughs> I see this all the time. He goes on to say the atheistic community often characterizes itself as the bastion of reason. 
Today is National Day of Prayer, led by the American Humanist Association. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I misspoke. It says, uh, because today what they do is um, the reason, I believe today's the reason rally, uh, if, I'm, if I'm correct. If not, it's coming up. Uh, but they, what the atheists have done, instead of a National Day of Prayer, they say, well, it's, uh, it's actually, we're gonna, the atheists are going to celebrate the National Day of Reason. You pray for us, we will think for you, as they like to say. This says, today's National Day of Reason, led by the American Humanist Association in the Washington area, secular humanist in response to the National Day of Prayer, is a case in point. <clears throat> in fact, David Silverman, president of the American Atheist, and you can, you can actually watch David Silverman's, uh, he's done a lot of debates. Uh, you can go on YouTube, he, he debated Frank Turek. Uh, didn't stand, I don't think, too well in that one. And he also debated James White, and I, I definitely think he lost that one, I think even worse. Uh, but you can watch his, his debates there. Um, Silverman says, the message we deliver is undeniably true. Even if it may be politically incorrect, God is a myth, <clears throat> and, in re- and reason is inherently atheistic. So if you believe in God... That is just, that's a myth. You, you don't have reason. You don't have science. You don't have logic. You don't have these things on your side. It's a myth. But if you are <clears throat> someone who has a high view of reason, well, he says reason is inherently atheistic. He goes on to say, um, the all-too-popular notion in our culture is that reason is reserved for the non-religious. Among the population and any who believe in God should not be considered reasonable. In fact, leading atheist thinkers like uh, <clears throat> Richard Dawkins sees any and all beliefs in God and the supernatural the same. And he says, there are two ways of looking at the world, through faith and superstition or through the rigors of logic, observation, and evidence. In other words, through reason. So you see this... <clears throat> You see this definition of faith that they have built up, which is, by the way, straw man. And a straw man fallacy is basically when uh, your opponent builds an argument you never make, a very much weaker version of it, and then they attack it and uh, as though they have somehow defeated your argument when all they've done is attack straw and Richard Dawkins is really good at that. In this case, we'll see that um, he has made a, a straw man on what um, historic Christianity has taught about faith. Adam goes on to say, space does not permit an examination of the false view of faith being portrayed here above. The reader can see this, and he gives a link for more information. Now, if you want to read this article, you can go to our Ratio Christi at Winthrop page, and the link is there, and we'll also tag it on our Theology Matters page. <clears throat> it says, um, is it the case, however, that atheistic humanists, humanistic thinkers have the market cornered on reason? The answer is an emphatic no. Aside from the facts that most Western universities were started by Christians, many prominent scientists and philosophers through the centuries were Christians, or at least believed in God. And we'll get into this in my talk. Most of the founding fathers of the United States of America believed in God, etc. 
the very fact that human beings uh, reason in the first place actually serves to demonstrate the existence of the very God, the atheistic, humanistic champions of reason refuse to acknowledge. How so? Then it's titled, The Absurdity of Denying <clears throat> Reality. Please understand this is not an argument about the complexity of the brain, how much complexity there must be for consciousness or any other such biological or neurological issues. Rather, the argument here rests on the fact that man has an intellect that is directed towards pursuing truth. That man has an intellect should not need uh, elucidating. The very fact that this debate about reason is taking place is illustrative of man's intellectual powers. Likewise, upon a moment's reflection, one can see that his intellect is directed towards attaining truth. Philosopher George, I'm not even going to try and say the name, uh, and Maurice Holloway say, Our own human intellect is itself a natural power that is ordered to its proper end. For man does not order his intellect to the truth. He finds that, of its very nature, it is already ordered to the truth. While man can order himself in many of his actions, or ends uh, that he sets up for himself, he nevertheless finds his powers initially finalized or directed towards, uh, toward ends that he has not established, but towards which these powers tend of their very nature. goes on to say, to deny this is actually in practice to confirm it. In other words, if one disagrees with the fact that his intellect is directed towards truth, he would essentially be saying, wait a minute, that's not true. But if his intellect is not directed towards truth, then who cares if it is not true? What he's actually communicating by such a statement is that he only wants to believe what is true. That is what corresponds to reality, which is precisely the point. Dawkins is a great example of how one can fight, only fight reality so far before reality bites back. In his book, The River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life, he says, quote, In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, just electrons and selfish genes, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. Now, it's funny <laughs> – as we'll see the play on the word reason here. Uh, he goes on to say, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Adam goes on to say, notice that if man is merely DNA and there is at bottom no purpose, then there could not be the purpose of truth towards which his intellect is directed. Yet Dawkins creates tons of media through which he attempts to communicate what he is convinced is truth. And he apparently expects his readers to be able to grasp with their intellects the truth he communicates. But that is the very thing he seems to deny as possible. And uh, the article goes on. Um, we'll, we'll post to it on our page. Um, but it's a good article, and I uh, would suggest you share it. And it, it kind of coincides um, a lot with the talk that I'm that I gave at the York Baptist uh, Association here. 
And the theme of the of the conference was uh, the overcoming conference. Overcoming conference, and <clears throat> we had uh, my friend uh, who's been on the show before, uh, Adam Johnson, do a talk kind of on Christianity and culture, and he brought in some incredible, uh, incredible points. I think we'll have him on the show uh, to do his talk soon. Um, and then I gave a talk on overcoming the hijacking of science, and then uh, had a friend, my friend Garrett, uh, who gave a talk on Islam. And really, the focus of this was a lot of these things have been hijacked by the culture, by the media, um, etc. And we want to kind of set the record straight. And so we're going to spend some time here looking at uh, the, the overcoming the hijacking of science. I start out with a, a quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson. And many of you guys probably remember Tyson. He was uh, the guy that kind of looked at as the, the, the next Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan was a well-known uh, skeptic, uh, probably I'm not even sure when he died, maybe 90s, uh, some, somewhere in the 2000s. But he did the show Cosmos. And if you remember the famous line, uh, the cosmos is all there is, was, or ever will be. Recently, they redid the series, and they used uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's a, an astronomer. Um, I think he's at a, uh, one of the large uh, museums in New York. I forget exactly where. Uh, but a brilliant man. Uh, you'll see him all the time on PBS, on uh, NOVA, and uh, NOVA Science Now which, you know, I love, I love Nova. Uh, of course, you know, it's PBS. You're going to get uh, fed a lot of um, evolution and uh, naturalism, really. Uh, but Neil deGrasse is a, he's pretty, uh, he's a good scientist, of course, uh, but like Dawkins, he likes to take uh, his thinking and his arguments out of the field of science and often mingle it with philosophy. And while he is a good scientist, not a good philosopher. You can see uh, reasonablefaith.org. Um, you can you can listen to the uh, Reasonable Faith podcast for more on that. Uh, William Lane Craig is a who's a brilliant thinker. He's two doctorates, one in New Testament and one in philosophy, uh, has interacted. Um, I think he did a series on on uh, the Cosmos uh, series that had come out. And we actually did one as well with Jay Richards. Uh, we did a show on that, almost two hours. So you can look in the archives and, and find that. Just Google Jay Richards, uh, Theology Matters with the Clues. Degrassi says this. He says, the good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe it. The good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe it. We live in a day... We live in a culture where, at least in America, where scientism is really kind of the rule of the day. And scientism really deals with how do we know? How do we know things? Well, it's kind of been engrafted into us that the only way we can know things is through science. Unless it's tested, unless it's observed, unless there's evidence, hardcore, and when I mean evidence, I mean physical evidence, we shouldn't believe it. 
And this is problematic, as we'll see on numerous cases. Um, Historical truths, for example, is not science. Uh, The events that happened in history, for example, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Plato, uh, you know, Aristotle, uh, etc. These events that happened, the the biblical archaeology, these are not things that I can test through the scientific method. It's not observed, I wasn't there, I can't repeat it, you know, these types of things. Uh, It's a different category. It's history. It's historical truths. Uh, one can give philosophical proofs for the existence of God, as we'll, we'll see as we look at some of the uh, cosmological and, and fine-tuning arguments uh, that mixes both philosophy and science. Uh, but there are just strict you know, philosophical arguments, transcendental, uh, that don't rely on science. Uh, and so as we kind of unfold this talk, we're going to see that this idea of the only kind of knowledge we can have is through the scientific method is uh, first uh, self-refuting because the proposition we can't know anything except we, unless we test it through the scientific method is a, is a knowledge claim that can't be tested through the scientific method. So if that proposition is true, <laughs> then it defeats the very claim of the proposition. So it's self-refuting, for one. Secondly, it's demonstrably false. So let's look at some, as we jump into this, kind of the outline is we're going to look at some preliminaries. Uh, We're going to see how the atheists have to steal from God. And um, Turk has has a great book on this called Stealing from God, where he he looks at um, the acronym CRIMES. He looks at causality, uh, reason, information, morality, ethics, and science. and shows how the atheist has to steal from God in order to make their case. Basically, have to sit in God's lap to slap his face. We're going to make the case for theism with just two arguments. Um, and during this talk, folks, I I ran out of time about halfway through. I had about an hour, and or maybe 50 minutes or so, and uh, I was flying, but I just had so much information I couldn't. Couldn't get it all out. So I think today we'll be able to do that. Uh, And then lastly, we'll look at how to engage skeptics. So let's look at a few starting points. Well, there's a difference between positive and negative apologetics. Positive apologetics is you're putting a case forward for the Christian faith or for just the existence of God, say. You know, uh, William Lane Craig will do these debates. Does God exist? And in this, he's just debating basically – um, positing that uh, a monotheistic God exists. You know, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, they all share this um, kind of generic monotheism. Um, of course, I'm not saying that the God of Islam and the God of Judaism is the same. That's not what I'm saying. Um, when you're doing these debates, like Craig will, Craig will do these debates, you know, you've only got sometimes an hour and a half to do the debate. And you can't marshal every single argument out. Uh, sometimes it takes that much just to establish the existence of God. Now, a lot of times what Craig will do is after he has proven monotheism, is he will, he will tack on uh, the resurrection. He'll go get into the historical arguments for that. Remember, he's a New Testament scholar. 
Uh, and that way, because it, it, that, that's what differentiates uh, the God of Islam and the God of Judaism. That's one of the main things. Uh, of course, the God of Christianity is, is uh, triune, right? We're not polytheists or anything like that. We hold to monotheism, as does Judaism, as does Islam. But we do say there is three persons, one essence, one being. Within this one being that exists, there's three co-equal, co-eternal persons. But to get to the doctrine of the Trinity, um, you have to give more arguments. So I just say that to say, when you're when, you know, doing a, a positive case, that a lot of times uh, for me, what it looks like is um, basic, generic, monotheistic arguments. And then after we establish the existence of God, we can get to the resurrection, etc. And I'll share why I do that uh, in a bit. Positive apologetics is putting forth the case. Negative apologetics is demolishing the other world view. Is the other world view coherent? Uh, is it is it self contradictory? Right? Is it incoherent? So, for example, as we'll see, as we look at the atheistic world view and we look at negative apologetics, the atheist uh, oftentimes is decrying that the God of the Old Testament is wicked, evil, immoral, etc. Well, the problem is. Uh, in a naturalistic worldview, you have no way to ground evil, wickedness, etc., in any objective way. You might think the God of the Old Testament is evil, etc., but so what? Other people don't think he is. So uh, what's the standard? Uh, and that's kind of the point. Um, negative apologetics is basically just demonstrating the other worldview is incoherent, it's incohesive, and they have to borrow from the theistic worldview. Again, uh, for more on that, see Turek's book, um, Stealing from God. Lastly, let's make a distinction between demolishing arguments and demolishing the person. As a Ratio Christie chapter director, uh, I deal with apologetics every day. That's what we do. That's what we do. And you often get the same kind of objections to apologetics. A lot of people love it. A lot of people think, think it's great. I've, I've met with several pastors this week. We've got several things, uh, several irons in the fire, so to speak. They're excited about apologetics. They're excited about ratio Christi. They're excited about what we're doing. But you oftentimes run into, you oftentimes run into um, Christians that, don't uh, have such a sweet spot <laughs> for apologetics. And they will think you shouldn't give arguments for the existence of God uh, because if you do that, you are giving man's reason autonomy over the Bible, giving man's reason autonomy over God. In fact, the last few weeks uh, we've done – well, not a few weeks. Um, probably a month ago we did a debate between Adam Tucker, the guy that wrote that article I read, and a guy by the name of Fred Butler at Grace to You. And um, now I, I don't think necessarily Fred, and then we did another de debate with Cy Tenberg and Kate and Nate. I don't think they would say, uh, don't give arguments. I, I don't think they would say that. Uh, but they would say you start um, with the Bible, if I'm understanding them correctly. Uh, and that giving these arguments really is just a waste of time because all it does is prove the philosopher's God. So we get objections from that. Um, we also get uh, – see those debates, too, if you want more on that. I don't have time to get in and 
to defending the classical apologetic method, but you can check out those debates for more on that. Um, more of what I'm going to deal with now is um, the, the Christians that think you shouldn't do apologetics because it's unloving. You know, it's, it's unloving. Uh, first thing I think is important is we have to define what do we mean by apologetics, right? Uh, there are people who believe that apologetics is going around and saying you're sorry for being a Christian. Literally had people say that and get angry at me. Why, why are you going around apologizing for being a Christian or to be, you know, bold, etc.? Well, apologetics is not going around saying you're sorry to be a Christian. Apologetics is making defense for the faith. And uh, as we'll see, there's numerous places in Scripture, such as 1 Peter 3.15. Be ready always to give a apologia, defense in the Greek, to everyone who um, asks for a reason of the hope that's within you. And do this with gentleness and, and with respect. Second uh, Corinthians 10.5, Paul says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So there's a biblical basis for this. Um, Norm Geisler has a wonderful article called An Apologetic for Apologetics on his website. Just Google Apologetic for Apologetics Norm Geisler, and you can see a great defense for why we need apologetics. But sometimes people will say apologetics is unloving. We are not put here to argue. We are not meant to do that. Uh, we are here to share the gospel, just to give love, just to love everyone, uh, etc. And look, I understand the sentiment, okay? Um, I'm, not, I'm not for being... Um, argumentative, and, and etc. But we are called as Christians to make arguments. We are called as Christians to demolish arguments, as I said, 2 Corinthians 10.5. There is a distinction between demolishing arguments and demolishing the person. We see this confusion, I'm convinced, most in the Christian community with, um, when we're, as we're having to debate the issue of homosexuality. I have seen clear, level-headed, good-thinking Christians that I thought were really solid theologically. When it comes to the issue of homosexuality, completely lose their mind. And I don't say that lightly, but will completely back off of what the Bible clearly says on these issues because they think it's unloving to take a stand against their friend uh, who's homosexual. And we have to make sure there's a distinction between demolishing arguments and demolishing people. We are never called to demolish people, uh, friends. We're told uh, the two greatest commandments, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. So with our homosexual friends, we love them. We love them, but love does not mean affirm them in whatever they want to do. That's not love. I love my daughter, but I cannot let her eat cookies every morning for breakfast, even though I'm sure she would love that. And I'm sure I would love that too. <laughs> but love is looking out for the other person. It's willing the best of the other person. So if I love my Mormon friend, guess what? I've got to tell them 
that they believe in a false gospel. They do not have an orthodox view of Christ. They do not have an orthodox view of the Godhead. They do not have an orthodox view of soteriology. They do not have an orthodox view of the Bible. See, if I love them, I tell them that. If I don't love them, I pat them on the back and affirm them and send them on their way to eternal hell. That's not love. So there's a distinction between demolishing arguments and demolishing people. Christians are never called to demolish people, but we are called to demolish arguments. We're never called to be argumentative, but we are called to give arguments. So you think of giving arguments. The task of the apologist is to take the claims uh, against it. So, for example, someone says uh, science has disproven the existence of God. Okay? The task of the apologist is not to attack that person. Oh, well, you've been you know, divorced and your kids uh, are ugly or you know, something like that. That's what, that's, in logic, that would be like an ad hominem attack. You're not dealing with the argument. You're attacking the person. We're not talking about that. What we're saying is, okay, this person says science has buried God. Say that uh, – say they say uh, the universe is eternal. Therefore, there's no existence for God. There's no need for the existence of God. God is out of a job. Well, what the apologist will then do is give arguments as to why the universe came into existence. No, you know, the, the, the scientific evidence demands it. The philosophical evidence demands it, uh, etc. And so we're not, we're not being disrespectful. We're not being rude. We're not attacking the person. Uh, we, are, we are giving reasons as to why we believe what we do. All right, so let's take a look here at the new atheists, uh, sometimes called the four horsemen. And you have a lot of books that have been written. And they've sold a lot of books uh, in popular culture. You have The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. You have God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens, who died a few years back. And then you have The End of Faith by Sam Harris. And um, both Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett are pretty good thinkers. Uh, Dennett's a philosopher. Um, I think Harris has a BA in philosophy and a degree in, in like brain neuroscience or something to that effect. Uh, Hitchens was a journalist, uh, a wordsmith, and to be honest, probably my favorite out of all the new atheists. And I do. I, I pray to God that in his, his sovereign grace and his mercy, he saved Hitchens on his deathbed, and, and I would love to be able to see Hitchens in heaven. You know, when he came out and he had had that terminal cancer, he was very touched at how many Christians had pledged to pray for him. Uh, so he's, a, he's, he's my favorite of the new atheists. Uh, and then you have Richard Dawkins, and uh, Dawkins is uh, very – let's see how to say this – very angry. He's a very angry man when it comes to the things of uh, religion. He's written several books. He's a biologist. Um, Brilliant thinker on those issues. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to agree with his views on, on evolution, etc., but he's, he's written a lot of books uh, dealing with evolution. He's, he's written uh, The Blind Watchmaker, which was, uh, I believe, a counter to Paley's argument. He has written uh, Climbing Mount Improbable. Uh, but probably his most popular books 
is uh, the book like The God Delusion. And in this book, not so much doing science as he's really overstepping into the area of philosophy, and he does it badly. And you'll have atheist philosophers like Michael Ruse say the book's an embarrassment. The book is an utter embarrassment, and, and Ruse is a is a is a uh, atheist himself. And uh, thinkers like Alvin Plantinga, who's probably one of the top Christian thinkers in the world, if not the, said um, you know Dawkins' work was uh, he'd, he'd call it sophomoric, but that's an insult to sophomores. See, I think what that shows is just because they're good in certain areas doesn't mean they're good in every area, right? Just because Dawkins is good at biology doesn't mean, therefore, he's good as a lawyer or good as a, a, you know, a brick mason. And it doesn't mean he's good at philosophy. See, everyone does philosophy and everyone does theology, whether you're an atheist or not. The question is, are you going to do it well or are you going to do it poorly? And I would submit the new atheist uh, do philosophy pretty poorly, including those who are trained in, in philosophy. So there's a few differences here between the new atheists and the old atheists. The tone of the new atheist is it's just much more angry, and it's uncharitable. Dawkins pretty much dismisses Thomas Aquinas in, in about one or two pages in his book. Now, anyone who knows who Thomas Aquinas is uh, knows that the man has written volumes and volumes and volumes. Brilliant, brilliant. One of the, probably the most, very well could be the most brilliant man in all of Christendom. Dawkins basically, uh, in two pages, writes him off. How can you seriously interact with with someone like that? How can you how can you seriously say you're interacting with with Aquinas uh, in two pages? You know, um, it's ridiculous. The new atheists don't respect much of the Christian thinkers of the past. Guys like St. Augustine, St. Anselm, again, Thomas Aquinas, etc. And so what you see is a lot of um, anger and not very much charity on the part of the new atheists. Now, the old atheists, they're not nearly as sophisticated and thoughtful in their argumentation. So you can read academic thinkers, and I, we have a, a book, uh, Portable Atheist. And it's uh, basically a, it's a pretty good-sized book that's filled with a lot of essays uh, from atheists. And you have thinkers in there like Michael Martin, Anthony Flew, William Rowe, and others who may not have agreed with the theist position. Okay, They weren't Christians. They weren't theists. They maintained that God did not exist. But they recognized that such thinkers like Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas were brilliant men. Right? You don't have to share the conclusions in order to still think they're, you know, they're brilliant people. Well, you don't have that same respect at all with the, with the new atheists. In fact, you have this quote from Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction." Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, 
pestilential, <laughs> I can't even pronounce half of these words, uh, capricious, malevolent bully. See, Dawkins uh, doesn't hold back. He tells you what he really thinks. So, of course, the, the question could be, you know, if, if he is all these things, of course, how do you get that? What's your standard of good? How do you say that he's an unpleasant character? How do you say he's angry and evil and all this thing? How do you say that uh, or, or uh, um, imply these things are wrong? Right, saying being you know he's homophobic. Well, if God doesn't exist, uh, why is homophobia wrong? See, in this quote where he thinks he is just lambasting the God of the Old Testament, what he's doing is demonstrating he has to sit on God's lap to slap his face. I think that analogy actually came from Greg Bonson, who was at the park one day. Greg Bonson was a uh, uh, was a brilliant philosopher. He passed away several years ago. But as he's at the park, uh, he's, uh, he's seeing a little uh, a father and a, and a daughter interact. The daughter was, you know, two or three or something like that. She wanted an ice cream or a snow cone, something like that. And she's sitting on his lap, and Dad, Daddy didn't get her the the ice cream. And she starts uh, saying, I, I hate you, Daddy. I hate you, Daddy. Uh, and this is kind of that whole idea of, you know, here he is, it just struck him that this little girl sitting on his knee that he could easily, you know, toss into the lake if he wanted to, but he's not. He's he, She's sitting on his knee, and he's loving her, and he's holding her, and, and she's shaking his, her fist at him. Uh, I, just, I just love that analogy, and I think you see that with the new atheist. This is the perfect example. Uh, Dawkins going off on the God of the Old Testament has no ground to stand on. Nothing. I did some of these quotes. Just I wanted people to see the tone of the new atheist. Christopher Hitchens says, God did not create man in his own image. Evidently, it was the other way about, which is the painless explanation for the profusion of gods and religions and the fractide both between and among faiths, that we all see all about us, and that has so retarded the development of civilization. And this is his book, God's Not Great, how religion poisons everything. See, in, in the eyes of Hitchens and in the eyes of many atheists, theism is a plague. It is a disease. It is holding man back. It's holding us back. We could evolve. We could become smarter. We could lose these silly myths. A Bible that was written 2,000 years ago where people thought the earth stood still and the earth was flat and dragons existed. Their idea is you're training your kids like this. You're training to think this. This is dangerous. This is not good. This is bad. So we need to lose the myths in their eyes. We need to lose the myths. Uh, Bill Nye, Bill Nye the science guy, had made, a, had made a clip about why it is so dangerous to keep or to teach your kids creation. And, I mean, he went off. I mean, he went absolutely slap off. 
what we're going to do, I think we'll take a quick break because I want to I want to get that clip loaded up. I want to play that want to play that clip, and because um, I think it's I think it's important to let you hear kind of Bill Nye in his own words, and then we'll look at that. We'll look at how do we how do we respond to some of that. Um, let's yeah, let's do that. Again, you're listening to Theology Matters. Uh, it's 44 past. The hour, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back if I can get this thing loaded up. We'll listen to what Bill Nye says about teaching our kids uh, creation. Stay with us. What is something that computers and humans have in common, which constantly needs upgrading in computers, but not in humans? The answer is software. You may not have realized you have software, but inside the nucleus of each of your cells, a program is written in the form of 3 billion DNA letters. Intelligent programmers write computer software, but what about living things? Evolutionists tell us that the information in the first living cell just appeared by itself with no intelligent input required. But is that possible? The answer is a resounding no. Even one of Australia's best-known scientists, Paul Davies, conceded that there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. And perhaps that's why, in a New Scientist article, he lamented, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. My name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I'm a cold case homicide detective. Cold case investigations can teach us a lot about how to investigate the claims of Christianity. Cold case detectives examine events in the distant past for which there are often no living eyewitnesses and little, if any, forensic evidence. The Gospels also record an event in the distant past for which there are no living eyewitnesses and no forensic evidence. The skills I've learned as a cold case detective can help you determine if the Gospels are true. I'll teach you how to be a good detective. My new book, Cold Case Christianity, will provide you with 10 important principles known to all cold case detectives. I want to give you tools to help you examine the evidence and draw the most reasonable inference. Cold Case Christianity will help you to take these 10 principles of homicide investigations and apply them to the New Testament Gospels. Are the Gospel writers reliable eyewitnesses? Can they be trusted? Has their testimony been corrupted over the years? What can we conclude about Jesus from the Gospel eyewitness accounts? I want you to come away with fresh insight and the ability to articulate what you discover as you read the Gospels. If you're a Christian, I want you to have the confidence of a good detective. If you're a skeptic, I want to give you something reasonable to think about. I hope you'll read Cold Case Christianity to discover how evidence is examined and what this evidence tells us about Jesus. Take another look at the claims of Christianity from the perspective of a detective.
All right, folks, and welcome back to Theology Matters. And I think I've got the clip up and ready. And again, this is a clip of Bill Nye, and he's talking about the dangers of letting your kid, uh, of teaching your kid creation. I'll, I'll, I'll let him speak in his own words. Uh, again, I, I'm just, I'm, I guess I want you guys to see kind of the mindset of uh, the atheists and what it is that, that they're afraid of, what it is that they're seeing, and why you see the tone uh, like it is. So here's Bill Nye in a spot he did uh, a while back. Denial of evolution is unique to the United States. I mean, we are the world's most advanced technological. So, I mean, you could say Japan, but generally the United States is where most of the innovation still happens People still move to the United States, uh, and that's largely because of the intellectual capital we have, the, the general understanding of science. When you have a portion of the population that doesn't believe in that, it holds everybody back, really. Evolution is the fundamental idea in all of life science, in all of biology. It's like It's very much analogous to trying to do geology without believing in tectonic plates. You're just not going to get the right answer. Your whole world is just going to be a mystery instead of an exciting place. As my old professor Carl Sagan said, when you're in love, you want to tell the world. So once in a while I get people that really or that claim they don't believe in evolution. And my response generally is, why not? Really, why not? Your world just becomes fantastically complicated when you don't believe in evolution. I mean, you, here are these ancient dinosaur bones or fossils. Here is um, radioactivity. Here are distant stars that are just like the our star, but that are at a different point in their life cycle. The idea of deep time of this of billions of years uh, explains so much of the world around us. If you try to ignore that, your your worldview just becomes crazy. It's just uh, untenable. It's self-inconsistent. And I say to the grown-ups, if you want to deny evolution and live in your in your uh, world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe, that's fine. But don't make your kids do it, because we need them. We need scientifically literate voters and taxpayers for the future. We need people that can, uh, we need engineers that can build stuff solve problems. It's just really a hard thing. It's, it's really a hard thing. You know, in another couple centuries, that, that worldview, I'm sure, will be, it just won't exist. I mean, it's, it's there's no evidence for it. So. You know, I'll say a lot of people have said the same thing, and they're dead, and they're gone, and Isaiah... 40 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What I would like to say with, with this particular issue with Bill Nye, now let me say up front, I am a young earth creationist. Okay, I, I think textually, I'm, I'm definitely convinced God created the, the, the universe uh, in six days. You know, I think the earth's probably six, six to 10,000 years old, etc. But I would not die on that hill, right? I could be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong about that. Uh, and in fact, when I deal with atheists, as we'll see, as I move along in the, in the arguments here, I use Big Bang cosmology 
as because uh, it's a great argument for the existence of God. Because you know what we're doing is we're not we're not getting into when did God create, but rather did God create? Good Christians take different positions on this. You know, um, I'm going to be taking a class this uh, this summer with Hugh Ross. I'm sorry, not Hugh Ross, with Fuzz Rana from Reasons to Believe, which is a ministry run by Hugh Ross. Um, it's an old earth creationist ministry, probably the, the the best one there is on it. There's a lot I can learn from them, right? Well, I have a lot of Hugh Ross's books. Um, I'm a huge, you know, William Lane Craig fan, so I've got a lot of his books. My point is, what you heard was Bill Nye attacking one particular stripe of creationism, and that's primarily the young earth view. Secondly, I'd say that those arguments have been answered. He's simply not read the young earth material. There are legit, hundreds of legit, probably thousands uh, of scientists who are trained in the field who have way more degrees and way more uh, training, etc., than Bill Nye, and uh, have no problem with the young earth. So that's kind of the first thing, is you see that he's just attacking um, one particular stripe of creation. Uh, secondly, the arguments that he gives, uh, you can just tell he's not up on the literature at all from the English creationists. Uh, but you, you see the mindset. Look, if you want to believe these you know, silly myths, that's fine, but don't teach your kids these things. We need them. We need scientists. We need doctors. We need these things. Well, uh, again, this is this is uh, kind of the essence of uh, Hitchens' quote that has so, in quote, retarded the development of civilization. Let's look at Lawrence Krauss. Of course, his book, A Universe from Nothing. Krauss has actually amazingly uh, debated William Lane Craig, I think, three times and was utterly slaughtered all three times. Uh, it's a ha- they're hard debates to watch because Krauss is very rude. He continuously um, interrupts, talks over Craig. Uh, he talks over the moderator several times, and the moderators had to give him a warning because he was so utterly rude. He would not be quiet and let William Wayne Craig even develop an argument because he knows if you can't beat them through honest argumentation, you just talk over them, shout over them. And that's what, that's what Krauss does. He says this in his book, Universe from, I think, it, I believe it was uh, in his book, Universe from Nothing. He says, science is only truly consistent with an atheistic worldview with regards to the claimed miracles of the gods, of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So, if you love science, if you love reason, if you love these things, well, it's only consistent with an atheistic worldview. But again here, Krauss is stealing from God. Krauss is stealing from God. How so? Well, if God does not exist, how do you have the uniformity of nature? Why isn't everything chaos? How do you have the laws of logic? How are you able to think and do experiments, test things, etc.? 
only if you have a god that can ground things like the laws of logic, um, a, a god who is orderly, rational, etc., that you're able to even do these scientific experiments and have a scientific method. It's because things are consistent. It's because things um, today, you can test the way things are today and have pretty good confidence. Can't know for sure, but good confidence that it's going to be like that tomorrow. You see, with these guys, with atheists like Krauss, etc., they hold that the laws of nature are immutable. They can't change. They're unchanging. Well, of course, if God creates the universe, he's free to step inside of it. Uh, it's not as though he's handcuffed from his own universe. Uh, and so with regards to miracles, etc., they have not given an argument as to why uh, miracles cannot happen. Uh, you can just argue it maybe inductively that we don't see it, therefore uh, miracles are not reasonable to believe. But you know what? Uh, the universe came into existence one time. Origin of life came into existence one time. Macroevolution is a process. You know, all these things you can't see that the atheists hold to that are rare events but yet happened. And so uh, this is kind of um, you know the Hume argument against uh, miracles. But uh, as we see, again, um, they're stealing from God to make their case. Krauss does that all the time. Major branches of science were discovered by theists or deists, both, but you know, you could say theists and deists, I guess. Um, most of them were theists. They were Bible believing Christians who believed that God created the universe. That again, he's orderly, he's rational, and that by discovering scientific truths, we're able to know the mind of God. Henry Morris in his uh, excellent uh, study Bible, uh, he has uh, a list uh, of numerous of the scientific um, scientific fields that were discovered by uh, theists. Notice I don't say invented, right? Because it's, it's like gravity. Gravity's not invented; it's discovered. Same thing with these uh, natural laws and, and science that is built into the universe. So antiseptic surgery, well, Joseph Lister, 1827 to 1912. Bacteriology, the great thinker Louis Pasteur. Uh, Isaac Newton with calculus and several other things. He, he wrote actually, I believe, more on theology than he did on science. Celestial mechanics, you have Joanne Kepler. Uh, chemistry, Robert Boyle. Comparative anatomy, George Cuvier. George Cuvier. Uh, computer science, Charles Babbage. Dimensional analysis, Lord Raleigh. Dynamics, Isaac Newton, electronics, uh, John Fleming, and James Clerk Maxwell. Uh, electromagnetics, Michael Faraday, energetics, Lord Kelvin. You could go on and on and on and on. This idea that science and faith are incompatible is just a false distinction. It is a false view of faith. We saw it earlier with Dawkins when he's saying, um, you know, basically uh, faith is believing something that, you, that there's no evidence for. Well, that's not the biblical view of faith at all. The Greek word for faith is pistis, and it's a confidence, it's a trust. I can know these things are true. 
John the Baptist, you can look at Scripture. Jesus himself gives evidence for who he is. John the Baptist, remember, he's locked up, he's in prison, sends his disciples to Jesus and says, um, John wants to know, are you the one to come, or are we supposed to be expecting another, another Messiah? And Jesus says, go back and tell John the things that you've seen. The dead have been raised. The deaf hear. The blind see. See, Jesus didn't just say, I'll take my word for it and go back and tell him. He gave evidence for it. That's why the, the reason he did the miracles it wasn't just to wow everybody with a, with a firework show. It was to, to back up his claims. He says numerous times, if you don't believe the words that I say, then believe the works that I do. Don't believe my claims. Believe me because of the works. With Thomas, John chapter 20, you know, you got Thomas saying, look, unless I can put my hands in the nail prints, I will not believe. What does Jesus say? Jesus tell him, no, uh, you know, don't touch me, just believe, uh, you know, believe in something you know there's no evidence for. No, he doesn't. He says, touch me and see. And next thing you see, Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. When atheists characterize faith, believing in something that isn't true, or that you know isn't true, or believing in something that you don't have evidence for, they are being intellectually dishonest. That is not what the biblical view of faith is. And sadly, friends, you have a lot of Christians that have been taught that's what faith is. You can't give arguments for God's existence. If you could give arguments for God's existence, then you wouldn't need faith. That's a, be- that's a, that's a poor view, friends. That is not the biblical view of faith. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Uh, the Reformers make the distinction with, noti- I believe called Notitia, Ascentius, and Fiducia. Notitia is kind of the facts. This is what it is. So in order to believe something, you've got to have kind of the propositions. You've got to have the facts. Um, Essentius is whether or not you believe the facts are true, whether or not you accept them. And the third stage, fiducia, is uh, believing in it, submitting to it. A lot of people can believe Jesus is God. A lot of people believe God exists. A lot of people believe that the Bible is the word of God. And if you believe all that, well, you've qualified enough to be a demon. Because James 2, I believe it's James 2, says even demons believe that. Even, even demons believe that God exists and, and tremble, right? But there's a submission, and that's the third step. So we just want to say um, faith is not a blind leap in the dark. And as Christians, we need to, to make sure we're not creating that dichotomy between faith and reason, or faith and science. Because a lot of people have this idea that science, logic, thinking, these are tools of the devil. And I have heard Christians say, it is not good for young people to go to college because then they learn and they get too smart. I had a gentleman at the conference that I spoke at come and said that, basically. His kid is now a a non-believer. He's gone to college, and he's just too smart for his own good. Well, what's that saying? 
That's implying that if you're a Christian, you're an idiot. Christians are for stupid people that don't like to think, that don't like evidence. That's not that's not what Christianity is, friends. And um, we do. I, 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 I'm serious. I'm passionate about this. We do a disservice to our King. We do a disservice to our Lord when we have this piety and this thinking that somehow being intellectually stupid uh, is somehow a good thing, and it somehow uh, is pious. It's not, friends. It's not. It's it's lazy. It's intellectually lazy. We are commanded, study to show yourself approved. We want to be good servants of Christ. And to do that, we are to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. So don't let anyone ever tell you that faith and reason are opposite, or that science and faith don't come together. Because the major branches of science were discovered by, most of them, Bible-believing Christians, not atheists. Now, let's, uh, let's look at this distinction here between general revelation and special revelation. Theologians make this distinction. General re- revelation is God revealing himself through the creation. Special revelation is God revealing himself through prophets, dreams, etc. Now, primarily the Bible. People will ask, well, what about those who don't have a Bible? What about those who've never heard of Jesus? How do they know God exists? Well, Romans 1, 18 through 23 says God's wrath on unrighteousness. Um, this is uh, kind of the title of the, of the scripture here. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, does it say they don't know? Oh, no, 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 no. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. It goes on to say, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Why is it plain to them? Well, because God has shown it to them. How's he done this? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since what? The creation of the world. Goes on to say, in the things that have been made. So how do they know? How do they know God exists? Through the creation of the world, through the things that have been made. So so they are without excuse. See, when Richard Dawkins dies, and I I pray, seriously, I pray because I'm not deserving of salvation any more than Richard Dawkins. It is grace, uh, all of God's grace. But when someone like a Richard Dawkins dies, and he has to stand before the throne of God, say God asks him, why did you not believe, Richard? Why did you not submit to the Lordship of Christ? Dawkins is not going to be able to say there wasn't any evidence. If only there was just some more scientific evidence, I would have believed. No. It says this, so they are without excuse. No excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God 
or give him thanks. But instead they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Humanism at its finest, folks. Humanism at its finest. Psalm, uh, Psalm 19.1, heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night after night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, there's no words where their voice is not heard. What does that mean? I can be standing next to 100 people that all speak 100 different languages and we all stare up at the night sky and we see the stars and you know what we see? The heavens declare the glory of God. It's there. It transcends speech. Romans 2 goes on to say how God has put this knowledge in us. Man knows God exists. We know it through the creation itself. Isaac Newton famously said, gravity explains the motion of the planets, but it cannot explain who set the, man, the planets in motion. See, we can, we can study the, the, the V8 engine. We can study combustion. We can study how the pistons work, how the laws of physics, chemistry, etc. interact with the, with the engine. But studying the engine and only staying inside the engine doesn't explain the origin of the engine, where it came from. And the fact that scientists can study nature and study laws of nature, etc., might explain how nature works, but it doesn't explain how nature came to be. See that distinction, friends? Secondly, science rests on several philosophical assumptions. And these philosophical assumptions cannot be proven. So, for example, logic, uh, math, these, these are things that cannot be proven, but they're assumed. When I say, so, you know, um, science, science is good, that assumes logic. Uh, but yet, or even to do, say, the scientific method, you're, you're using the laws of logic, Right? But I can't test the laws of logic through the scientific method because it's the laws of logic that prop up the, the, the table of the scientific method. In order to test the, law, the laws of logic, I would have to use the laws of logic and assume them to begin with, and that would be begging the question. So logic is not something that can be uh, proven through, through the sciences, that there are other minds outside of my own. How can I prove this scientifically? I have to use my senses to test senses. Now, is it rational and is it reasonable to believe that there are other minds outside of my own? Yeah. I mean, I think there's good philosophical arguments and good philosophical reasons. But see, I'm not constrained in my epistemology to just mere scientism. But I can't know anything outside of science. This is a problem if that's how you think you know everything is through the scientific method. Thirdly, ethics. Ethics are not something that can be tested through the scientific method. Uh, 
you hear scientists say this kind of stuff, and it's rather funny. Well, you ought not kill because um, then if you do a certain, you know, if you do certain actions, then that species won't survive, and that can be harmful to the species. So, so what? Who says it's a good thing for the species to survive? Where does that come from? So you could look at what was going on in the Holocaust from a pure scientific method. You could say, okay, Hitler is putting you know uh, Jews and homosexuals and gypsies and Jehovah's Witnesses. They're putting them into into ovens and they're heating the ovens at you know however hot it was. Well, you could do the scientific calculations of if you put such chemicals in a particular heat, this is what's going to happen. Okay, but that alone can't tell you whether or not what Hitler did was good or bad. See, that's a moral judgment. That's, that's dealing in the morality. That's an ought. Hitler ought not do that. But in order for there to be an ought, there has to be an ought giver. All science tells you is what is. The laws of science do this. Uh, so they're, you, you could say that their science is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It can't tell you. And again, this gets back to you know human induction. It can't tell you that it's always going to be the same. For example, with the natural laws, you you can't know that. Just because the sun rose today doesn't mean it's going to rise tomorrow. You can make you know again good inductive reasoning, sure. Um, but the point is again the same thing with ethics here. Um, Ethics deal with the way people ought to be. If we say it's wrong to kill other human beings, then we're assuming there's a standard of the way it ought to be. Science doesn't give you that. Aesthetics, uh, for example, beauty, etc. Science doesn't deal with that. Uh, and then finally, science itself cannot be proven by the scientific method. Right? You can't use the scientific method to prove the scientific method is valid because then you're assuming the scientific method in order to get your, your results. So again, that'd be a circular reasoning. So we say that also say, look, I love science. You know, if you come over to my house, I got a bookshelf that's just dedicated to science. I mean, I have goodness, I, I collect um, biology textbook and earth science textbooks. Uh, like on my birthday, <laughs> I buy the old uh, science textbooks. I love them. I love science. Um, I'll even watch, you know, Bill Nye the Science Guy and say that on Netflix. Um, I love science. Uh, I love science. But there is, you have to be wise. Um, you have to. Science rests upon philosophy. And if all your ideas is that science is the end-all, be-all, can't know anything apart from science, you don't have a very good view of knowledge at all. Uh, it's self-defeating. It's self-refuting. It's demonstrably easy to show that that's not the case. So, again, we don't, it's not that we have a problem with science. We just understand there's different categories. Greg Kokel, uh, a few years back, wrote a great, art, great article uh, on his website, Stand to Reason, str.org. Highly recommend that uh, website. Uh, but it was called, I think it was, Weighing, Weighing a Chicken with a Yardstick. And what he was saying was, 
to try and weigh a chicken with a yardstick is a category error. It's a category mistake. Well, when 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 Dawkins and with others, uh, new atheists try and start saying, you know, science gives us morality or science can tell us these things as to whether there's other minds outside of our own or the way things ought to be, etc. It's a category error. When they're saying things like um, the God of the Old Testament, and then he goes on that long rant. Well, science can't tell you that, Richard. Science cannot tell you that. That is philosophy. That is dealing with ethics. That is dealing with morality. That is not dealing with science. And if his quote is correct, that uh, you know all we are is just uh, you know DNA dancing to its tune, you have no you have no grounding for ethics. How do you say things like uh, rape is wrong? How do you say that that's wrong? Child abuse is wrong. If all you are, if all your brain is, is the laws of chemistry and physics fizzing around, well, your chemicals tell you to do this, and another person's chemicals tell them to do something else, how do you determine right from wrong? If there's no standard in that. If there's no, if there's no free will, if there's no metaphysical mind, how do you determine these things? How do you punish someone for bad behavior when all they're doing is dancing to their DNA? So again, they are loud, they're boisterous, they're angry, they're you know just inflamed at the God of the Bible, and yet their position has to steal from God in order to get there. All right, folks, we are moving right along here. We are going to now look at making the case for theism. So we just spent some time there looking at how the atheists have to steal from God. So we're going to look at two arguments. We're going to look, one, at the cosmological argument. Secondly, we're going to look at the design argument. So cosmological arguments, and, and this comes from Doug Grotice's book, Christian Apologetics. Friends, if you do not have this book, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Doug Grotice is such a brilliant thinker, uh, professor of philosophy out there at Denver Seminary. This book is probably 800 pages or something. Phenomenal book called Christian Apologetics. It's got several chapters on cosmological arguments. Uh, but he says, cosmological arguments offers reasons to believe that the cosmos depends on something outside of itself and have a variety of forms. And so, you know, you could have uh, the, the one we'll be looking at today is the um, cosmological argument, uh, the Kalam cosmological argument, which deals basically with the beginning of the universe. You can use it for other things, uh, but uh, Leibniz has a cosmological argument. Aquinas used the argument from contingency in his third way. So there's, there's a lot of different cosmological arguments. Today we're going to be looking at the Kalam cosmological argument. This argument was actually first discovered by a uh, Muslim and kind of fell off for a while out of, uh, out of popularity for, for a long time. Uh, but in the, I believe it was in the 70s, early 80s, uh, William Lane Craig really breathed new life into this argument uh, with all the different discoveries uh, in science. So I'm going to play this clip. This is a, this is a you know, clip I played during my talk. Uh, this is a video put out by Reasonable Faith. It's about four minutes. And it just explains the cosmological argument. So we'll go ahead and play this. We'll come back and uh, continue kind of just um, going over this, this uh, video. 
God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models fail to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. All right, folks, uh, so that is the 
Kalam, Cosmological Argument. And uh, actually, my good friend uh, Nell did the voiceover for that. And a great video. You can find that on YouTube. Highly recommend that. Uh, but the Kalam is a powerful argument for the existence of God. So let's look at this argument. Premise one, whatever begins to exist has cause. The universe began to exist. Premise two, therefore, the universe had a cause. Now, when dealing with the skeptic, um, again, this is a deductive argument. And so this has to be dealt with. You can't just simply dismiss it because you don't like the conclusion, etc. And let me say up front, uh, again, if you get something like Gro Tyson's uh, Christian apologetics, uh, he adds more to it. Uh, as far as the conclusion, there's a lot of things you can deduce from this conclusion. But let's look at this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Well, you know, as I talk to the, with atheists about, uh, you know, the existence of God, sometimes they'll say things like, uh, sorry, you know, I don't believe in magic. Uh, that's why we're doing our day of, of, of reason and you're doing your day of prayer. I don't believe in magic. Well, believing that the universe can pop into existence from nothing and by nothing, I would say it's worse than magic. See, in atheism, you don't have a magician, you don't have a hat, you don't have a rabbit, you don't have nothing. And yet we're supposed to believe the universe comes into existence from nothing and by nothing. I don't have enough faith to believe that. If the universe can pop into existence from nothing, then why can't anything and everything pop into existence? We never see this. So I think just kind of based on our intuition, based on the, the, the scientific evidence that we see, kind of through, again, through inductive type of reasoning, we're rational in maintaining premise one, that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Hey, if you don't agree with this, show me an example of the contrary. Now, someone like Lawrence Krauss and, and some other atheists will go to something like um, you know, Heisenberg's principle of, principle of indeterminacy and talk about quantum mechanics and how you know, in an energy-rich uh, you know, sea, uh, in a vacuum, you can get these particles that pop in and out of existence. Well, the pro- problem is pretty obvious. Uh, there is an equivocation on the word nothing. When the philosopher says the word nothing, we mean no space, no time, no matter, non-being, nothing. What Krauss is doing is he's equivocating. Now, the fallacy of equivocation will come when you use uh, one word, uh, that you use a word that can have one or two different meanings, right? Uh, And so in this case, he's saying nothing in that uh, the way the scientists will use it. Like, you know, empty space, no matter, just, just energy, etc. Well, using energy and converting that into, into matter uh, is not nothing. You're, using, you're doing the experiment in space, in time, and you're using energy. Well, according to Big Bang cosmology, there was no space. There was no time. There was no energy. The universe came into being 13.7 billion years ago. So if we're going to be rational about this, then let's be rational about this. Uh, but to claim that, that uh, you know, going to quantum mechanics is somehow uh, an example of something coming from nothing is ridiculous. It's not. So I would say based on scientific evidence, again, and everyday experience, we are rational in maintaining premise one. Well, let's do a little recap of premise two. 
second law of thermodynamics. And I give this example a lot. Come over to my house, and I have a cup of cocoa sitting on my on my desk here in my office. And I uh, say, you know, touch the cocoa, and you touch the cocoa, and it's warm. And I say, how old? Uh, how, how long do you think that cocoa has been sitting there? You could say, well, you know, depending how hot it is. If it's really hot, say, you know, uh, no more than five minutes. You know, if it's if it's uh, lukewarm, hey, it could be could have been sitting there, you know, fifteen twenty minutes. You 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 would have some idea based on the fact the heat that's being put off of it. But if you touched it and it's lukewarm, or not lukewarm, but let's say the, the temperature of the room, the same temperature as the room, and I say how long, how how you know how uh, how long it's been sitting there, you're not going to know. It could have been sitting there for two hours. It could have been sitting there for four hours. It could have been sitting there for four days. You're not going to know because it's not putting off heat. It's the same thing with the universe. The sun is still burning uh, an incredible amount of energy every second. Uh, stars are still, um, again, burning. Um, planets are giving off heat, etc. The fact there's still heat in the universe uh, demonstrates the universe is not infinitely old. If it was infinitely old, it would have burned down an infinitely long time ago. So the fact that the universe still has energy and still running down demonstrates the universe cannot be uh, infinitely old. Again, folks, this is your standard Big Bang cosmology. This is not biblical creationism. This is not, you know, I'm not sitting here reading Henry Morris. <laughs> this is just standard Big Bang cosmology. Uh, second, they know through redshift. Uh, when when uh, astronomers uh, look through the telescope, uh, light, as you know, will bend in a prism. On one end, you have the blue end of the spectrum. On the other end, you have the red end of the spectrum. Uh, the fact that the light is always shifted towards the red end of the spectrum demonstrates the universe is expanding. If it was towards the blue end of the spectrum, that would mean the universe would be collapsing. That would be scary. So what we can know by redshift, uh, think, of, think of redshift as uh, kind of like the Doppler effect. You know, you're standing outside, you, maybe you live by a train track or whatever, and you hear the, the train, you know, as it goes by, it's, gets lower and lower and lower. Well, because the frequency of the sound waves change. Well, it's the same, light does the same thing. Uh, and the, the, far, the more that the universe is expanding, the more the light waves are stretched out. Redshift is a smoking gun for the fact that the universe had a beginning. Uh, there's other issues. Again, I, I recommend the book because uh, we talked about positive case and negative case. I, I say get these two books. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist for the positive case where they deal with these in depth uh, with laws of thermodynamics, redshift, etc. And then stealing from God is very good from the negative apologetics. And that's uh, my friend Frank Turek. Go to crossexamine.org uh, or Amazon. You can get the books there. So there's, there's multiple lines. He actually gives five lines. He, he uses the acronym SURGE. So he goes with uh, second law of thermodynamics, expansion of the universe, Radiation echo, uh, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity, and uh, the great galaxy scene formation. So there's like five lines of evidence he used. It's, again, it's just standard uh, evidence in Big Bang cosmology. Get the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist for more on that. You can also get um, On Guard 
which is uh, Craig's kind of uh, dumbed-down version of reasonable faith, which gets into that probably even more than the I don't have enough faith. Let's deal with one more objection here. Sometimes people will say the multiverse. Well, if you've ever watched Expelled and seen the discussion between uh, Ben Stein and Richard Dawkins at the end, uh, for those who don't, who don't know, Expelled was a video or a documentary put out about how scientists who hold to intelligent design on the university level are, are – um, just terribly discriminated against, ridiculously. Uh, I think you can watch it on YouTube for free. Highly recommend that. Uh, really kind of pulls the curtain back, and you get to see what a lot of these guys deal with as far as discrimination. Um, but during this discussion between Ben Stein and Dawkins, Ben Stein is pushing him on the agent or on the uh, origin of life. Where do we come from? Well, we. We don't know. It could be, you know, these uh, particular chemicals and da 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 da. da and, okay, well, well, and then what? Where, where are the chemicals from? Well, we 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 don't really know. <laughs> ben Stein is just pushing him and pushing him, and finally, uh, Dawkins uh, comes up with a possible solution that maybe we came from aliens. Maybe we were seeded here from aliens, the old panspermia of you, and. Of course, everybody gets a laugh out of this. Um, it's it's funny in two ways. One, uh, we won't believe in the existence of God, but somehow little green men are more believable. And it just goes to show you it's not about um, believing in some type of first cause. It is about they're not going to believe anything that says thou shalt not. Thou shalt not have authority, right? The Hitchens are, are always – always brought that up in his discussions about God, how he, you know, somehow um, moderates your sex life. Uh, and ultimately, that's what it comes down to. So, yeah, you know, we'll believe in little green men, uh, but we're not going to believe in, in the existence of God. Leonard Malad now, who uh, co-wrote a book with Stephen Hawking, uh, we are talking about this the other day on Reasonable Faith, um, wrote that book, uh, The Grand Design, and Malabdo actually goes on to say uh, that he uh, doesn't necessarily have a problem with believing in aliens. He says, uh, I'm normally a person that believes in evidence, only through the evidence. And uh, if I can be shown through the evidence, then I'll believe it. But then he says, you know, for whatever reason, he says, I just think in my heart uh, that aliens exist out there. Again, it just shows the total depravity of man. But secondly, it doesn't answer the obvious question. Right? The obvious question is going to be, where do the aliens come from? <laughs> right? Where do the aliens come from? Well, this is significant because this is very analogous to the objection with the multiverse. You can't just keep positing multiverses to get out of the problem of a beginning. I think it was, it was Norm Geisler who gives the illustration Imagine you're sitting in class, and a professor tells you, you know, uh, take notes. So you ask your friend, hey, can I borrow a pen? Friend says, uh, actually, I don't have a pen. Uh, let me let me let me see if Tim over here has one. Tim, you got a pen? No, I don't have one. Let me ask Fred. Fred, you got a pen? No, I got a I got a pen. Ben, Ben, you got a pen? No, I got a pen. Okay, so 
if you just keep going for an infinite amount of people that don't have a pen, will you ever get a pen? Obviously not. Right? Just just kicking it back one over and over and over and over an infinite amount of times doesn't get you the pen. And going back through an infinite number of multiverses doesn't get you a beginning of the universe. Even if the multiverse is true, and there are Christians um, who are not necessarily opposed to this. I want to say uh, Jeff Zerwick, I think it is, at Reasons to Believe, has wrote a book, uh, either a book or I think it's an e-book, uh, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Multiverse? He talks about this. So a multiverse is not necessarily somehow um, a defeater for Christianity, but the point is that can't be the, 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 the explanation. There has to be – you have to get back ultimately to uh, a first mover, and so the multiverse does not do that. So there's good scientific evidence, again, for the beginning of the universe, both, again, intuition, scientific evidence with premise one, everything that begins to exist as cause, premise two, that the universe began to exist. Very good evidence, science, uh, scientific evidence on this. Uh, and you could actually use philosophical arguments as well and show uh, the problems with an actual infinite. Uh, we're not going to get into that just for sake of time, but there are good reasons to believe that the universe began to exist. And in fact, let me because remember, you know, in the in the 30s and 40s, etc., um, maybe even a little bit before that, um, people thought that. Um, the universe was eternal. That the whole steady state um, argument, which was that the universe was basically eternal. I want to read just a few quotes on this at the, uh, about the universe having. Uh, let's see. Yeah. So this is uh, a few quotes dealing with this. Um, Fred Hoyle, British, British astrophysicist, says a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The, number, uh, the numbers one calculate from the facts seem to me to be overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Okay? Uh, actually, this is dealing with, I think, the the design uh, of the universe, which is actually, which is another good one. Hold on one second, folks. I just, I think it's important that you guys see that the scientific consensus is behind that the universe came into existence. Let's see. Of course, you can never find it when you need it, you know. All right. Well, I'm not I'm not able to find the the quotes on that that I was looking for, but uh, we'll move on. Uh, but uh, you know, again, just to say that uh, it's it's. Pretty much, you know, unanimous as far as the, the, the arguments and that for the Big Bang and the evidence for that. So I'll leave you with that. Uh, again, check out Craig and uh, 
Church book, and I have enough faith to be an atheist and on guard for more kind of on those arguments for the for the Big Bang. Second, let's look at the argument from design. Psalm eight verses three and four says, "When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him?" See, friends, we're not an accident. We're not here by chance. We are made in the image of God, a God who loves us, a God who sent his son to purchase us on the cross, sacrifice for our sins, a God who has created an incredible universe. When we look out again, the heavens declare the glory of God. Isaiah forty twenty six says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings, sorry, um, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The God of the Bible is the one who has created the universe, who's given us this incredible design. Philosopher Peter Grief says. And his excellent book. Now he's he's a Roman Catholic, so I don't agree, obviously, with his, uh, a lot of his theology. Though there's a lot of theology I do agree with. Uh, but he's got an excellent book, uh, Handbook of Christian Apologetics. In this, I think he goes over 20 arguments for God's existence. Uh, again, Kreeft, uh, you know, I don't agree with him on every everything, uh, especially on theology issues. But he's a he's a good philosopher. He says of the design argument, the argument starts with the major premise that where there is design, there must be a designer. The minor premise is the existence of design throughout the universe. The conclusion is that there must be a universal designer. So what we're going to do, Reasonable Faith, to the rescue again, uh, has put together an excellent little video on the design argument, the fine-tuning now, the design argument is basically in two forms. First, uh, in the cosmos, where you see the fine-tuning of the constants and the quantities, etc., uh, but also in biology, uh, at, the, at the biological level, with, as far as information, um, as well as uh, microscopic level, right, with dealing with things like um, irreducible complexity, uh, information in the cells, Etc. So we're going to look at both of those if, if we have time. But here's a quick video dealing with the fine-tuning of uh, the cosmos. From galaxies and stars down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. 
The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant. A change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would again be life prohibiting. Or another example of fine tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he is hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be life-permitting. The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a life-prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a life-permitting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine-tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So, in an effort to keep this option alive, some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach, known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that, odds are, life-permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, measured, or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine-tuning. Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe 
is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine-tuning. Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, the best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be it was designed that way. All right, folks. Uh, a common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect monkeyed with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. All right, folks, and uh, we don't, we're about running out of time here, so I need to, to keep it moving. If you want more, again, on the design argument, um, Reasonable Face um, website is very good as well. Uh, just quick, uh, quick few slides here as we, we make our way towards the, the finish line here. Uh, Hugh Ross, uh, astronomer, uh, uh, runs the ministry Reasons to Believe, wrote a, wrote a really good book on this called Why the Universe is the Way It Is. He says, human existence is possible because the constants of physics and the parameters for the universe and for planet Earth lie within certain highly restricted ranges. Some of these anthropic constants, uh, the strong nuclear force of the coupling constant holds together the particles that are in the nu nucleus of an atom. If the strong nuclear force were slightly weaker, multi-proton nuclei would not hold together. Hydrogen would uh, be the only element in the universe. Uh, number two, the velocity of light can be expressed in a variety of ways as a function of uh, any one of the fundamental forces of physics or as a function of one of the fine structure constants. Hence, in the case of this constant two, the slightest change up or down would negate any possibility for life in the universe. And he's got a chapter on this dealing with how even the speed of light, even you know, 186,000 miles a second, uh, even if that was changed, uh, it, would, it would radically alter uh, life on Earth. Third, the, the distance between stars affect the orbits and even the existing of existence of planets. The average distance between stars and our part of the galaxy is about 30 trillion miles. If this distance were slightly smaller, the gravitational interaction between the stars would be so strong as to destabilize planetary orbits. So, folks, even the, the, the distance between the stars, distance from the planets, etc., cetera, uh, is, is extremely important. That's just, you know, dealing with our, with our galaxy. Now you've got the fine-tuning of the Earth, uh, this number of star companions, if more than one. Tidal interactions would disrupt planetary orbits. If less than one, you wouldn't have enough heat to produce li uh, for life. 
Surface gravity. Uh, if it was stronger, planet's atmosphere would retain huge amounts of ammonia and methane. If it was weaker, planet's atmosphere would lose too much water. So even our atmosphere is finely tuned. Uh, the distance from the parent star. Uh, if, if we're further away, too cool for a stable water cycle. If closer, too warm for a stable water cycle. Uh, number four, the thickness of crust. If thicker, too much oxygen would be transferred from the atmosphere to the crust. If thinner, volcanic and tectonic activity would be too great. Well, folks, I've got I've to keep going on here. Uh, let's go to the biological design. Now, Anthony Flew was a guy that I first met. Uh, I never met him personally, but through the TV, uh, the night God saved me. As I was flipping through the channels, there was a debate on the John Inkerberg show between Anthony Flew and Gary Habermas. Anthony Flew is one of the top atheists of our time. Brilliant, brilliant thinker. Now, the amazing thing about Flew is he converted. I don't think he converted to Christianity. I don't know. Only God knows that. But he did convert from atheism to a form of theism or deism dedicated much of his life to defending naturalism and arguing against the existence of God. I have a lot more slides here that I could get into and really get into the DNA uh, argument for information, irreducible complexity, etc. I just don't have time to do that. What I'm going to do is play a small two-minute clip from Anthony Flew. Uh, this is interviewing about his book, There Is a God. So let's take a quick listen to this. We'll come back with a conclusion and wrap it up. What were some of the factors that prompted you to, in recent years, um, reconsider atheism and to come to the conclusion that uh, that there is a intelligence? Um, it's been in entirely these, uh, uh, I suppose, biological discoveries and uh, discoveries about the the chemistry. So the, the, these things. the complexity and... Uh, yeah, the integrated complexity argument. Now, when you talk about the integrated complexity, yeah. is it the, the um, unlikelihood of that developing naturalistically, the first complex integrated biological system? Is that where the problem you saw? Uh, well, yes, because after all, uh, there is a problem about... Uh, even well, of physical nature. There's, a, you know, it's if the integrated complexity of the physical world is a good reason, as Einstein clearly thought it was, of believing that there was an intelligence behind it, then uh, this argu argument applies a fortiori with the inordinately greater integrated complexity of the living world. It seems to me is this is just obvious that it, th that argument is much stronger now. And this was one of the factors that led you to conclude there must be an intelligence. Yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, uh, accepting uh, Einstein, who after all was the person who's qualified to judge, and seeing that a fortiori this applied where, of course, Einstein didn't uh, have any authority at all and wasn't incli inclined reasonably enough to talk about yeah. it. 
All right, folks. So let's let's continue on here. We got just got a few minutes left. You know, I respect Anthony Flew. Uh, I don't know if he ever became a Christian. I, I pray that he did. Um, he might have. He might. It might have just you know been deism. But he was honest. He looked at the evidence. He admitted he was wrong. And uh, it was literally the, the the latest scientific evidence and information and DNA uh, that really helped them. Uh, he goes on to say uh, in his book, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind, uh, science spotlights three dimensions of nature that point to God. The first is the fact that nature obeys laws. The second is the dimension of life of intelligently organized and purpose-driven beings, which arose from matter. The third is the very existence of nature. But it is not science alone that guided me. I have also been helped by a renewed study of the classical philosophical arguments. Now, see, science did play a role, but he realized science was not the only thing that can inform us. He says, I now believe there's a God. I now think uh, the evidence does point to a creative intelligence, almost entirely because of the DNA investigation. What I think the DNA material has done is it has shown that by all the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work. I'm going to read this quote as I end here. Robert Jastrow says, uh, for the site, now Robert Jastrow was an agnostic. Uh, I believe he held the seat at, at, uh, at Hubble with uh, Hubble's uh, telescope. But he goes on to say in his book, God the Astronomer, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. See, folks, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, For at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hitler will bow the knee. Charles Darwin will bow the knee. Richard Dawkins will bow the knee. Sam Harris will bow the knee. I will bow the knee. You will bow the knee. The question is, are we going to bow the knee willingly or unwillingly? We're going to bow, and we're going to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look, folks, if the Bible is true, if God exists, and we think there's good reasons, we think there's good evidence to think that, well, what we see in reality should confirm it. The universe should have a beginning. Animals should produce after their kind. Uh, there should be a ground for morality. Well, we see that. There should be historical evidence for the resurrection. We see that. Man is made in the image of God. Therefore, man is not like an uh, animal. We see that. We know that. Romans 1 says we're without excuse. It is not that man cannot find God. It's that man hates God. And unless God opens his eyes uh, and reveals himself, Man is going to be lost. It's not that the evidence isn't there. It's not that we can't see the evidence. It's just that he rejects the evidence. In conclusion, science rests on philosophical principles. 
the idea that scientism, the idea that the only way we know things is through the scientific method, is itself defeating and it's demonstrably false. Secondly, the major branches of science were discovered by theists. So the atheists are stealing from God. They are hijacking science, morality, ethics, etc., from the existence of God, from a Christian, or I wouldn't even say necessarily Christian. Uh, it is Christian, but uh, just from a theistic worldview. Third, faith and reason are not at odds. Faith and reason are not at odds. Faith is not this idea of believing that you, what you know isn't true. That is not what faith and reason uh, are about. Faith is reasonable, and it's not at odds. And it's because God exists we can have a reasonable faith. There is such thing as logic, and we're not just deterministic machines that wouldn't even know if it was true or not, even if it was true, if naturalism was true. Check out Alvin Planting's uh, evolutionary argument against naturalism. Lastly, the scientific evidence fits better in a theistic worldview. The scientific evidence fits better in a theistic worldview. People often confuse the scientific evidence with the implications of the evidence. We could go on and on about that. But uh, a lot of people reject uh, theism and reject Christianity because of the implications of the stuff. They'll say, oh, that's, that's, that's terrible, uh, you know, arguments. You know, when you look at the beginning of the universe, or fine-tuning, whatever. And what it is, not the evidence, it's the implications of the evidence. Lastly, your tips for evangelism. Well, be slow to speak and quick to listen. Hear the other side out. We want to represent our interlocutor fairly. We want to know what is it they're saying. What is the argument? We don't want to do what people like, uh, you know, a lot of the four horsemen do. Set up straw man arguments and then attack them. Secondly, listen carefully for confusions of categories between science, philosophy, and history. When Dawkins leaves the, the realm of science and starts getting into God being immoral, he is, he is making a category error if he's trying to ground that in science. Uh, thirdly, ask for the definitions of terms being used. When people ask, you know, do you believe in evolution? First question you should ask is, what do you mean by evolution? If you just simply mean animals change over time, like someone like Eugenie Scott of the National Center for Science of Ed, uh, Education will, in my opinion, deceptively use that as a definition. Well, of course, no one disagrees with that. But if what you're talking about is we all come from a single common ancestor, and you're talking more about the neo-Darwinian paradigm of natural selection and mutations over billions of years, and you know, parrots, professors, and uh, pomegranates are all related, then, yeah, there's not evidence for that, not good evidence. Lastly, always take your time to pray during your encounter. Do not simply try to win the argument instead of the person, right? That's not what we want to do. We want to love people, and we love them enough to share the gospel with them, and we want to share the truth with them. So that being said, folks, I'm pretty much way over my time. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to, you know, I wanted to get this talk recorded, Um Feel free to uh, to get a hold of us. Go to our, our Facebook page, Theology Matters with the Palouse. Uh, again, on this National Day of Prayer, pray for our atheist friends. Pray for those who are lost. Um, you know, as I do this talk, I don't in any way take, you know, happiness or glee that there are people that are lost. 
We do this show. We've done it for almost four years now. We don't we don't get a dime for this show. We don't we don't get paid for this. Our guests come on here. We can't pay them. We don't have the money to do that. But we we love people and they love people and they love the king and they want to get the message out. So pray for your friends today. Pray for the lost. Pray for the church of Jesus Christ that we would shine magnificent and glorious. Pray for our country as we're headed into a very rough season coming up. Uh, And uh, appreciate you guys for, for listening, and we will be back again next week for another episode of Theology Matters. God bless. Hospital is dead. Yeah. Jimmy Hendrix and Janis Joplin are dead. Yeah. Marilyn Monroe is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Yeah. Brando is dead. James Brown is dead. Princess Dot and John Lennon are dead. Biggie Smalls and Pop are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Give praise to King Jesus, the blessed son, victorious, glorious, resurrected one. To him belongs the power, glory, and honor. Ascended where he sits at the right hand of the Father. At the cross he made atonement, his people he saved. After three days he was raised and defeated the grave. By faith the elect behold him, his scepter is golden. He must have been hot and slippery cause death couldn't hold him. The spotlight is on today's icons. In a thousand years nobody will care, their light's gone. But at that time Christ will still shine bright. He's not in the limelight, he is the limelight. Criminal minded, you've been blinded. Looking for the body of Jesus, you won't find it. We never lack spirit, letting you catch hear it. Cause it's too much empty, like most secular rap lyrics. Plato is dead, Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Emmanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead, Muhammad is dead. Gandhi and Holly, Salafi are dead. Elijah Muhammad is dead. However, Throughout history, there's been mad religious leaders, prophets, preachers, scholars, teachers. But when it came to the grave, no one could climb out. That's where Jesus stands alone, like taking a time out. And don't be misled, I got a level head. No resurrection, Christianity would have never spread. The disciples weren't stupid guys who would ruin their lives and then choose to die for what they knew was a lie. That would be beyond ridiculous. Not an issue is the risen Christ seen by 500 eyewitnesses. Imagine 500 people in a court of law, each of them taking a stand, reporting what they saw. If their stories lined up and made sense, the evidence would have to leave you convinced, no doubt. But still it's by faith that we trust and praise the son who was raised for our justification. Check it out. Nero is dead. Constantine is dead. Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun are dead. Alexander the Great is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Yeah. Yeah.